Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Consoles, the show where we talk about some of your favorite songs and ours too. I'm Kevin, here with my co-host John, and today's episode we will be talking about the legendary Van Halen. Kevin, how are you doing today? I am doing excellent. Happy to be here with you, Johnny Boy, as always. Oh, thanks, man. And how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm looking forward to this one. Been a while. It's been a moment. As as they say, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And yeah, so we are back. Welcome back, listeners. Coffee and consoles. We're, we're glad my, you're uh, with us. <laughs> yeah, as you said, we love to talk about our favorite songs, and we felt like. With given the sad news from last week, it'd only be appropriate if we do some Van Halen. And you know, we we were probably going to do Van Halen anyway. That's true. Yeah, eventually, but, uh, one point or another. This has yeah. just sped up our timetable a little bit. Yeah, the sad passing of Eddie Van Halen at the young, ripe age of only sixty-five. Passed can you away throat can you cancer. be young and ripe? I suppose not. Yeah, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. No, but I mean, not to not to joke about the man's passing. No, not um, at all. Not at all. I was I was car shopping when I heard about it, so that was kind of interesting dynamic. Sitting there, like doing the paperwork, I get a flood of text messages from people. I was like, oh crap! Yeah. So I don't I don't want to buy this car now. Yeah, it does put a damper on the day, and yeah, very sad news, and you know. Since we're both within, you know, the music circles, you know, within Nashville, even though I'm not technically in Nashville anymore, but, you know, all of our friends, it was just a flood of Facebook posts of, you know, Van Halen, you know, he was a huge influence, like, like so much so that after Jimi Hendrix, it's, you know, not even arguable probably at this point anymore that Eddie Van Halen would probably be the next biggest influencer on the following generations. Um, yeah, he kind of really changed the game. Yeah, you know, of course, you know, well, and we'll get into it too, but yeah, it was sad news. Um, actually, I had to break the news to my dad because he was a big Van Halen fan as well. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, throat cancer, which, um, mm-hmm. and I, I found the, I think, the interview you mentioned to me, you texted me like, yeah, he uh, a couple of years ago said like, "Oh, I must have gotten this throat cancer from all my metal picks that I put in my mouth when I'm playing." Right. Cuz he had to use like copper and brass picks, which I didn't realize like he actually used it, which kind of makes sense when he he has that very like sharp attack a lot of the times and you know, that would come from metal picks, but I don't know if it was that or just the fact that had he, nothing to do with the fact that he started smoking when he was 12 and yeah, continue, continue to do so even after his cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Man, Which, yeah, again, sad news. You know, it's sad news. Uh, where he got the cancer, I guess, is speculation. Doesn't really matter at this point. No. no. So. Just uh, to all you young kids out there, stop Pro- the smoking. Yeah, probably don't smoke. We've, don't uh, smoke. 
stain. You figure cool. it out. Be it cool. was bad. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't drink any rum. Yeah. <laughs> well, like we start off each of our episodes, my friend, we're going to do a little toast to the roast. Toast How's that to the sound? roast. Sounds good yeah. to me. Toast to the roast. Toast to the roast. Ooh. It's, it's been so long since I've heard <laughs> that wonderful song. <laughs> so what are you drinking here today? This fine, uh, this is on a Thursday morning. I'm drinking a coffee I roasted myself to a, I guess it would be a City Plus roast, which I've let the coffee go past its first stage of roasting, which is called First Crack, and has not reached Second Crack yet, but it is kind of within the middle of those two. I believe that I believe the origin is Brazil, although I have like seven or eight different green coffees. So I kind of don't remember which one I grabbed. It's good, though. <laughs> I was going to say that started to sound a little dirty with all the second crack, first crack. Yeah, first crack and second crack. Boy, boy, howdy. Hmm. Well, I got myself uh, some Trader Joe's brand medium roast coffee that I think I just used the last of the beans. Uh-oh. It was pretty yeah. decent. You're going to have to go get more. I have a whole other pack, though. What was that coffee um, we were trying to get sponsored by? <laughs> Joking. Oh, Blue like, Bottle. Blue, Blue Bottle. bottle out yeah. From L.A., I believe. Yeah. <laughs> so Blue Bottle. Still, still waiting on that letter. Still waiting on the correspondence we sent. Yeah, they said, uh, yeah, they said the sponsorship was in the mail, but we haven't gotten it yet. So Someday, someday. <laughs> so um, with our Toast to the Roast, we're going to give a toast to something else, too. Like a someone or something. Yeah. So do you know? Uh, do you have format. a a toast you'd like to give? Well, my toast today, is going to be a short one. Uh, being seeing sure. how this is our first episode back in 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 a little while. Not not to make a big deal of it, but I would I would just like to toast my my good friend and co-host Johnny Cardoni. And uh, oh shucks, he has he has left us physically, but he will never leave our hearts. Sounds like I'm dead. <laughs> Almost sounds like you. I mean, you might as well be dead. You're in Delaware. That that I am. The home of Biden. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. Yeah, it has been several months, I think, since our last episode. But that's Never. all right. We're going to, you know, kick it back in the high gear and start to do uh, some more consistent episodes. Indeed. Try to focus more on, like, you know, just make some quality episodes, not have a timetable on them. Right. What about but you? Thank you, my friend. I toast to you. And I thought, given this, the topic of today's episode, I'll give a toast to my Uncle Pat. So my Uncle Pat, I may have mentioned him before in some past episodes, but back in the late 70s and through all the 80s, and at some point through the 90s to a degree, like he lived out in L.A. And, you know, he was a long-haired rocker, in multiple bands. He had a brief, like, l- small breakthrough. He had a video out on Nickelodeon, early Nickelodeon, meaning, like, early 80s Nickelodeon mm-hmm. back in the days. He had a little video out. But while, you know, living out in L.A., he worked at one of the guitar centers, and I think it was a guitar center right on Santa Monica Boulevard. You might have just heard my 
dog shaker collar. <laughs> so I apologize about that. So Uncle Pat lived out L.A., worked at the Guitar Center. It was one of the shops where many of the L.A. you know musicians and the rockers would come to. And Eddie Van Halen would, would come into that store. And it was my uncle who actually sold him Eddie's the first synthesizer, and he delivered it to his house. And it was, and I can't remember which brand it would have been. I uh, could probably look it up somewhere. But he sold him like the synthesizer that he ended up writing Jump on. Wow, very nice. That's pretty cool. And then later, I, this I just learned just this past week when, you know, talking with my dad, and he's like, yeah, your Uncle Pat used to, you know, you got to go to Van Halen's house several times because he had a home studio there too. So, he, mm-hmm. you know, whether he's delivering stuff, you know, from the store that he ordered. But he also got to go to a little party, you know, some of the parties too and like hang out with Van Halen. And hey, there you go. At the time when he was, you know, with uh, Valerie Bertinelli. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. So a shout out, a toast to my Uncle Pat, who I think I inherited some of those, you know, rock star dream genes of his. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't say. We thought, given the news, we'd discuss Van Halen's debut album, their self-titled Van Halen, from 1978, over 40 years ago. Which is... This album came out. Kind of crazy, because especially when they released this album, it was all disco. <laughs> true, yeah, very true. And I mean, this was... As hard as as hard as rock as anyone had ever heard up up until that time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure anyone listening, you know, you've seen countless videos or posts of people recently talking about how this album, especially the first track, even like the first three tracks, just hit them when they're you know young, when they're a young kid or maybe even a teenager, like. Lots of people talk about an album having a great one-two punch to start off. Like this has like a one-two-three-four punch almost. Yeah, it just it knocks you out by the time you know you really got me is done, and you know ain't talking about love comes up. It's just one after the other, and you know their original starts off with you know running with the devil, and then you have this not even a three-minute track eruption, which just blows people's minds. I can't even imagine hearing that in 1978. Yeah, and, you know, really brings out the whole, you know, the two-handed tapping technique that, you know, everyone credits Eddie Van Halen for, um, which he didn't necessarily, he didn't invent it at all, although he is an inventor, which we'll talk about later on. But, you know, he definitely brought that technique to the mainstream to a point that, you know, even non-musicians who are just, you know, into music, just music, general music lovers, they kind of knew about that, even right. though they maybe didn't know what like a guitar player would. But like, oh yeah, he does the thing with the fingers, you know, that no one else is doing. Right. But there are other guitarists back in the day, like going back to even violinists who would do a two-hand tapping and um, um, Alan Holdsworth was a big like early kind of fusion pioneering guitarist. He did a lot of two-hand tapping too, which um, probably influenced Eddie. And But uh, yeah, we, th- we thought we'd use this album to, to talk about. It's, it's pretty cool because if we get into it, like I didn't realize how just like bare bones 
the album is, just starting off listening to it. It's very just, you know, your bread and butter, bass, drums, guitar, yeah. David Lee Roth's vocals, and not, then you have you know, maybe an overdubs, guitar solo on a couple tracks, and some mm-hmm. background vocals. That's it. <laughs> it it kind of seems like, I don't know if this is the case for sure, but uh, just knowing the kind of scene back then, it kind of would make sense to me that they wanted to write music that they could reproduce in their live shows because it was all about putting on the best show that you could back then. I guess even to some yeah. extent today still, but today you have, you know, you can you can track out however many parts you want. It w- wasn't really possible back then. Yeah, so. true. Yeah, it, it had to, the live show was the starting point. And then when, you know, any bands recorded, it came from like, well, this is what we did live, so this is what we'll do in the studio. And now it's almost reverse these days. Like people start not even in the studio, just in their bedroom even and have infinite tracks and then if they had, you know, have to do something live, like, well, I got to bring my, you know, MacBook with me or my, you know, PowerBook with me to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> play all the backing tracks while I sing over it. Perhaps, I don't, you know, some band members, but yeah, it was very. It kind of reminded me when we talked about the uh, uh, Steve Ray Vaughan and their, you know, in Double mm. Trouble, like how they just, well, we'll just play the songs live in the studio and you know maybe a, a couple random overdubs here and there, but. Very just straightforward recording. Yeah, and well, and kind of in a similar style where Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble they were playing every day. I'm, you know, Van Halen they were they were playing weddings and bars and they were playing just as much as they you know humanly could. So it would make mm-hmm. sense that you know you kind of just capture that energy in the studio. Yeah. So how about we uh, we'll go back a little. Ways kind of start about like the the beginnings of this album, and so that takes us to about the mid seventies, if I'm not mistaken. Mid seventies. And there's a story of, and I didn't know this. Um, have you heard the story about Gene Simmons from Kiss? I have, but why don't you go ahead and tell it? Sure. Uh, so before they even recorded this, before they had a record uh, record label contract. Gene Simmons like became aware of them probably from shows they had been doing in LA and around you know they had recorded some demos on their own um, and around '76 Gene Simmons like financed a demo track or the demo mo- tape for <laughs> the most expensive demo tape ever created yeah yeah <laughs> and you know with the idea of like you know financing that to kind of get in front of record labels you know garner interest. Didn't get any interest from labels. Um, and it's kind of said, like, you know, Eddie himself wasn't convinced of the quality quality of the material at the time. I guess they weren't even using all their like, own equipment when they recorded it. So eventually, you know, Gene Simmons has to go on tour with a you know small little band at the time called Kiss. And he's like, oh, well, I'll secure a deal for you guys later on. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so they did the demos, and they, they keep playing. Like we said, like, they would play, you know, all over the L.A. area, you know, out of their hometown, Pasadena. You know, they play gigs at the Whiskey at Go-Go, one of those famous L.A. clubs. And eventually they got the attention of Ted Templeman from Warner Brothers, who had heard them at a couple shows. 
And then, uh, so he, you know, he became interested in them. So got them into the studio late, of, uh, late 1977. And they spent about three weeks to record what would be their debut album. And it apparently only cost about $40,000 overall to produce, which is not, you know, nothing to, you know, shake a leg at, but, you know, not terribly expensive for like a record label. Right. A record label. That's, that's, that's peanuts to them. Yeah. And it's kind of funny, you know, the bassist, Michael Anthony, he recalled at the time that they didn't really have a ton of material because like a lot of people, you know, back then, you know, like the bands would, they probably, as far as like original material, you know, if they're having to play more than an hour or so at a bar, you know, maybe two, three, four hour sets, you know, most of that's going to be covers, you know, essentially. So you're not going to have tons of original material. So they just like threw all their original material at this original, uh, on this first album. And even they have, you know, of course, their famous version of You Really Got Me by the, you know, the Kinks original. Mm-hmm. But they just, you know, they just took their live show and put into the studio. <laughs> and, you know, it, it works. It's like so, like, it has just that, like a lot of great, like, rock bands, like their first albums are fairly st- just bare bones, stripped down, nothing overly produced, overly, you know, no sophisticated productions. It's just, you know, here's the song and we're going to rock it. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, they, that, you really got me, you know, being a cover. It's one of those instances where the cover is almost, I mean, I, this might be a controversial statement, but I almost like it more than the original because it's just so rocking. Yeah, I get that. And it also kind of speaks to their influence. You know, you know, these guys were at least Van Halen was born in what, nineteen fifty-five. So that, you know, by the time they're, you know, ten years old, early teenagers, you have the Beatles and the British invasion. But also what came right before that, all the kind of early rock and roll and even like the doo wop groups mm-hmm. of the fifties and sixties. So that was all influential on them you know and you know eddie stated that you know probably eric clapton was his biggest influence and then even though a lot of people kind of associate jimmy page from led zeppelin to him which was also a big influence right but um are you telling you know, me kind of funny. you can be influenced by more than one person i am yeah. <laughs> crazy <laughs> i know but the cool thing is you know them doing you really got me, and then you know later on they would do the Roy Orbison classic, you know, Pretty Woman. It kind of stated that you know they're at the core they're still like rock and roll, even oh, if it yeah. was heavier, even if it was you know crazier, flashier guitar solos. At the core was still that kind of just that rock and roll, which is always that combination of like soul, like blues. And like early rock, early rhythm and blues, with that you know kind of the the folk country songwriting and lyric writing, you know that's kind of like that combination of that created rock and roll, and so that was always at the core of, of Van Halen. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about that opening track, "Running with the Devil." One of my favorites. 
Yeah. I want to discuss what in the world is that sound up front? What what like is just like, what is the sound up front? <laughs> it just signals that something epic is about to begin. That it sounds like a car horn, but then it just slowly dives and dips down. Uh, apparently, this is something that they even did live. I can't recall where I found this, but Van Halen, Eddie, that is like he arranged some contraption with like a car horn that reversed. Well, you know, the horn and then put it through some other things so that it created that sound. And that's what they, they would even do that on live shows to kind of, you know. Really? They brought the whole the, device. They wouldn't just yeah, play yeah. the recording. <laughs> uh, Which kind of speaks to his ingenuity. You know, in a similar sense of how like Brian May from Queen was like an inventor, you know, astrophysicist, almost like a contemporary Renaissance man. Uh, Van Halen's that way too. Like he even had a patent for a while that finally, uh, I think it ended around 2005 or so. He had a patent about like how to move the guitar, like flip it upward so it would be horizontal and flat, so that he could like tap like you know on a piano. He had a whole patent for this device that would like move the you know flip the guitar up. Of course, most famously, he has his Frankenstrat right that he put together from multiple other guitars that is you know one of those if not the most iconic guitar one of the top you know iconic guitars just by looking at it people you know you know what i find crazy about the frankenstrat is this is a guitar he pieced together for about 220 bucks like i think (laughs) in in several (laughs) interviews uh he mentions he got the body from this place called Boogie Bodies, and he bought it for like fifty bucks. And he said the net cost him like eighty or ninety bucks. And then he just like cannibalized the other parts from other guitars. He said he he said he ruined a lot of guitars that way. <laughs> and he just like routed out the, yeah. the body <laughs> and just like he he didn't know how to like hook up the uh, the pickup selector switch and or the other knobs. Because a strat will have three knobs, uh, two tones, and a volume, and he only knew how to. He only figured out how to hook up one of the tone knobs back, but he hooked it up as a volume knob, so his volume knob said tone on it. And then <laughs> he said he just like found a uh, pit guard and you know slapped it over there to cover up the the holes. Which when you look at the guitar, it was like, well, you already have like fourteen other holes in the guitar. What was what was the big deal about two more? But. Yeah, no kidding. These are like I I don't know if you remember it must have been in like the late 2000s, like 2008, 2009 where the Fender came out with like a, a a replica custom shop model of the Frankenstrat and it was oh, like okay. $25,000. Yeah. Oh my god. Which is <laughs> insane. And, and yeah, now That sounds about right. If you if you want to own that guitar, uh, Eddie Van Halen had his own line of guitars, and you can you can actually buy that guitar for less than a couple grand now, which is kind of interesting. Not not his. Yeah, I mean his guitar broke. I think you said he broke the neck like a few different times. So you know, it just goes yeah. to it just goes to show That's that not surprising. it's not it's not always like we have this a big you know lust for you know certain guitars and stuff and. This dude literally just like 
chiseled out a hole in like this unfinished guitar body <laughs> and made some of the most <laughs> iconic rock and roll records of all time. Yeah, it's you know the necessity is the mother of of invention. You know, I mean, that's no more could it be true with him. Like he just, oh, yeah, I was going to make it work with what I have, with what I can find. Yeah. Um, kind of similarly, he talked about, you know, early on, he didn't have, you know, a lot of money for all the, like, you know, different guitar pedals and such, so he just tried to make everything happen with his fingers, which kind of leads you to, like, you know, his two-handed tapping and such, like, mm-hmm. you know, which, you know, of course, later on, he would definitely become well-known for, like, using using the flange effect, which kind of creates that weird sort of, like, sort yeah, of oscillating sound, but not but, a lot of it starting off, you know. He no, was always yeah. focused on, like, creating the tone, like, searching for, as he put it, the brown sound. The brown which, sound. You know, yeah, he became famous for, like, how he referred to his guitar sound. Right. always... Searching for that tone, that feeling. Different, different from the brown note, mind you. <laughs> yes, yes. Not the brown note, the brown <laughs> sound. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so I, that's kind of crazy. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, he had like the, the black and yellow Frankenstrat and the white and black Frankenstrat and then the red, white, and black one. That, th- those mm-hmm. were all the same guitars. Yeah, he'd just keep on. He just know, kept repainting it, <laughs> repainting it, adding on to it. Yeah, like the on the cover for the first album, it's just white and black, if I'm not mistaken. Before he started to paint it red. Yeah, I think I think you're correct on that. Which yeah. I don't know about you, but the the red one is definitely the most iconic, and I think it's the coolest one. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. That red definitely. one's awesome. Although I would take the white one too. That that one's pretty cool too. So with the release of this album, actually probably even before they released the album, they were already starting to uh, jump on board as like opening acts for Journey and uh, later Black Sabbath, which, I mean, that'd be a cool show to see Van Halen and then Black Sabbath. Ah, yeah. That's pretty cool. And, you know, because of all these opening acts on tours that they had, you know, they slowly just more and more got the band in front of more and more people, and that helped... um, get their debut album like it started over you know over a period of time sell well like it went to gold in 1978 uh may of 78 so you know just a few months into actually being released and then not even a year after being released it already reached platinum status so for a band that basically only had maybe like you know regional you know name recognition in the la area they kind of exploded quickly within that year of 1978. Yeah. So back to uh, that first track, Run With The Devil. So I got my guitar that I felt would be the best, you know, for playing for this. This is a, I'm using my custom uh, Tim Rocco, what he calls his jazz Rocco guitar. Kind of looks like a, you know, like a jazz master. It's a dual humbucker guitar, and I have it tuned down a half step. Ah, very uh, good. Most of the record is tuned down a half step. And for those that, you know, not to get too deep in it, but just basically, you know, 
standard tuning on a guitar has the strings tuned to specific pitches, E, A, D, G, B, E. A lot of people, especially like some early like heavy metal and rock bands, and then especially today, it's super common, you know, to, you know, pop country, you know, you'll have the guitars tuned down a half step, but, you know. Speaking of Steve Ray Vaughan, he would tune down half step too. So everything's tuned down one half step so to an E flat, A flat, D flat. So I have that tuned down, but, and we we're discussing this a little earlier, it's not even perfectly in tune if you just tune down a half step. Like I feel like, given that, you know, this was recorded on tape, that at least for Running with the Devil, they sped it up just a little bit. So even if you tune down half step and you get your guitar in tune, you're still not going to be in tune to the recording. You have to then raise the strings up just a little bit, like push them sharp a little bit to match it to the record. So Which what do you super, think that means? Super annoying. <laughs> yes, it is. It's super annoying. Like you either have to just live with that kind of off pitch, you know, grind going on, or really just spend some time to really nail down and get those strings in tune to the record if you want to play along with it. But, um, you know, you being the, the engineer on the side, well, what would be the, you know, what would cause that? Especially given that, you know, it was recorded on tape back then. Yeah, yeah. So what, when we were talking about the show kind of off air, you, you, you mentioned this and I... I think I think the text I sent back was the joys of working on tape. <laughs> um, yeah, right. But then you mentioned that you thought it was the song has the potential to drag really easily, and yeah, that possibly they may have sped it up, which would make sense because you know if they're playing everything live and they got a really great take then they're not going to want to go back and try and recapture the magic, so to speak. So if it was dragging just a little bit, they would have just sped up the tape. Most tape machines have a little variable um, tape speed knob on them where you can slightly speed up or slow down after you set, like, if you set it to 30 ips or 15 ips, you can, you can then very finely speed up or slow down the tape. To, you and know, for those who may not know, what's an ip? Again? Ip inches per second. So gotcha. it's basically just the speed at which the tape flows over the three magnetic tape heads, which the first one I believe erases and aligns the tape, the uh, ferric oxide in the tape. The second one, the second one actually does a recording, and then the third one is used for reproduction to read it, read the tape when it's being played back. So I think, I think you're right. I think you're dead on with that. I think they probably just sped it up a little bit because they wanted the tempo a little bit higher and they didn't want to re re-record it because that costs time and money. And there's no guarantees that you're going to get the same great take back yeah. then. I mean, today it's easy. You just make a new playlist and all right, boys, mm -hmm. away you go. But it wasn't it wasn't like that, which you know, we could get into the philosophies of, you know, having that kind of mindset where you get something that's good enough and then you move on instead of kind of chasing the dragon. But we won't we won't do that right now, because that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. That damn dragon. <laughs> you never Always, catch the dragon, John. You never you never can. Yeah. Yeah, that was my just my 
instinctual thought was the recorded it tracked it everything sounding great they love the sounds and the performance and then after maybe so many certain times like after you just keep on listening to the same thing sometimes uh, you start to notice something that's been in front of you the entire time that you just had been blind to and so maybe it was just like you know what this just feels slightly too slow especially for an opening track to an album a debut album like because when you after that reverse car horn you just hear that low kind of almost fuzzy bass going almost like a heartbeat yeah like a monster like footsteps coming towards you maybe the devil's footsteps but you know that could very easily start to like feel a little like slow and dragging so maybe they just boosted the speed on the tape just a little bit it could also be as simple as the mastering engineer's tape machine was calibrated just slightly differently than the studio's where they track yeah, the right. tape machine. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing about that's why I sent that first text message like the thing about tape is unless everyone was, you know, all really really being very very diligent, then it's very easy to kind of do stuff like that with pitch and timing. So it could be it could be either one. I think you're right though. I it, it seems to me like that is more likely the case. Either way though, um this song, I think, is a great example of like the songwriting approach that Van Halen had. Like, and it kind of goes against some of the uh, almost like a assumptions or kind of default ways, especially like a rock guitar player would go about writing stuff. If you don't mind, uh, we'll go a little deep into like the idea of on oh, this tune, like the bass. It just stays on that. And you have this like pedal tone underneath, like this constant rock underneath. While on top, you have all these different chords. And so those, you know, by themselves are all these like different inversions of a different chord. You have like a a C to a D, all the, well, a B to C sharp because we're tuned down a half step. <laughs> right, right. Call it a that's, C flat to a D flat. Say. Either way, <laughs> but it's all these major chords. All over that pedal underneath, and that becomes just a staple of like Van Halen's songwriting approach. Every you know from this album on upwards, even when they get into the more produce kind of synthy keyboard heavy material later on like jump you know like jump you know all that's going on over just a constant bass tone underneath the bass doesn't change with the chords it just stays steady and um and i think some of that comes from perhaps some of their upbringing like you know now we haven't really talked much about their childhood but you know eddie and the drummer alex you know they're the brothers van halen born in the netherlands and their uh father was a musician Mm -hmm. uh classical clarinetist i believe or jazz clarinetist and pianist and played some saxophone too if i'm not mistaken 
So music was, you know, definitely all around them growing up, even to the point once they moved from uh, the Netherlands to uh, Pasadena, California, when they were young, uh, like you don't really hear this that often, but like their father wanted them to become like classical pianists, <laughs> like like especially back then, not too many parents wanted their children to become like you should become a classical musician, right? Right. <laughs> but you know, many classical pieces, especially into the um, you know the classical era and even the romantic era, it'd be very common for like. You know, if you're picturing like a piano, you have your left hand and the right hand. For the left hand, which would play the lower notes, to stay on the same note, while the right hand changed different chords. So the chords were changing on top, even if the bass note, the low note, was staying the same. So that's a common, you know, like technique in you know music composition, and they take that, you know, and put into the you know more heavier rock. Genre, which back in the day, you know, it would be like the bass would follow the guitar. You would have something like, or something like this. You know, something approaching that, like with the bass moving too, but no. So it's kind of cool. And like the whole less is more attitude, like, Eddie's not playing power chords like as I was just playing. He's just playing the upper strings. If I make it cleaner. Kind of going against the kind of default way a guitar player, especially a rock guitarist, would think. They want to play all those power chords on the low fifth string and sixth strings. But a lot of his like classic riffs, he's just playing on the middle strings or the upper strings, just playing like the upper part of mm-hmm. a chord. Just, you know, p- playing triads, which triad is just simple, the three basic notes of a chord, root, third, and a fifth. So he's just playing playing triads while the bass stays constant underneath. And that kind of is part of that overall sound of there. So it's never like, it's heavy, but it's not like that, uh, you know, it's not heavy in the sense of like a, I don't know. <laughs> it just creates that space between like the bass and the guitars, which is, you know, pretty cool and always like pleasing to the ears in a sense, even if you have all this distortion and saturation going on. Yeah, it definitely allows kind of the guitar to sp- the bass guitar to speak a little bit easier than when you're having to go in and dig out a bunch of space in the lower register yeah. for the bass to live in. So, I mean, as a as a mix engineer, you would appreciate that because it yeah. makes your job a whole lot easier. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. It's kind of similar like a similar approach to a lot of like perhaps like early like ACDC records they kind of have that same thing like that kind of four on the floor bass and drum doom, God, doom, God, while the guitar is on top you know so they had a kind of similar sonic approach versus you know like people maybe you know using like metallica as a good example who you know not too soon after van halen comes out metallica would start to emerge in the early mid 80s 
you know, like you, you can barely even hear the bass on Metallica records. Like, well, it's just, you know, in a sense, <laughs> like, <laughs> I believe that's also a uh, function of James and Lars doing a lot of the early mixing themselves. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and they've, and there are interviews where they basically say that exact thing. Like, yeah, we weren't really paying attention to the bass like we should have been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's just like, it, you know, I've, like as a kid, like you know, grew up on Metallica, I'm like, is there even bass guitar on these songs? Like it, yeah, it just blended in with the guitar. You know, the guitar was kind of mixed to be like the bass guitar as well. But that's not the case with uh, in Van Halen. Like it was very distinct. You know, the, you know that less of is more. Like you don't have to play all six strings on the guitar for a chord. You can just play two or three strings, and it cuts through. It has its space within the mix of a song whether live or in the studio on a record. Mm-hmm. And that just kind of speaks to their, I would argue, kind of like more sophisticated, uh, sophisticated ears that they, they they had, you know, how to piece together, you know, guitar, bass, and drums, and vocals to create a song. Right. Yeah. Which, a uh, funny story, so I mentioned his brother Alex who you know was the drummer did you know that they actually like started off like switching instruments when they were kids like Alex was the one who began playing the guitar and Eddie uh bought a drum kit for himself starting off <laughs> yeah and and I think the story goes Eddie came home and Alex was playing his drums and he was like all right then I'll play your damn guitar then <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know he could play the piece that his brother had been working on for weeks, you know, without practicing it much. And they were like, ah, oh, maybe we should just switch. Yeah. <laughs> and just, the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's got a, and that's pretty cool. Um, so we got Run With The Devil. Let's talk about like just how it sounds. Like, I, the, uh, I really like the first sound impressions. Yeah. Of this record. The thing, so I, I went back and I listened through the entire album the other day, kind of just to reacquaint myself with it, because it had been some time since I just sat down and listened to the whole thing. And one thing that stuck out to me was, man, they used a lot of reverb. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is just dripping with reverb, and you don't really notice it until you do. Mm. which is kind of interesting. And the other thing that I noticed uh, about it, which I guess is maybe not a positive thing, but like I dislike the snare sound greatly on like six of the 11 songs. <laughs> yeah, I remember getting that text. Yeah. And you saying that uh, <laughs> just what, like, atomic punk. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this snare sound is just not okay. But I, like it, it kind of goes to show that like, Whereas I might buy a record because the snare sound great, no one else does. And it doesn't, like, a recording doesn't have to be perfect for it to be a great recording. And I think this is a good example of that, where there are, like, you know, definitely things you could have done better on a technical level. But, like, the music's there, the performances are there, and you don't care. You Like, you're just, you're away and off on the journey with them from the, from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think about, I never noticed this until I listened back recently with headphones in, how it's panned on these songs. 
Oh, because yeah. it's Eddie's Van Halen is mostly to the left, which is kind of unusual. So you have you know bass in the middle, drums. Drums are a little spread out. Like you'll hear like crash cymbals on the right side. Um, of course, you know David Lee Ross' voice is you know the main vocals in the middle. So everything's kind of generally in the middle, but Van Halen's guitar is off to the left. Yeah, I don't I don't mind it. So something that I do when I'm mixing a song is I almost always do either hard left or right or in the center. And there are a few exceptions to that, but generally I have no qualms about putting something as, you know, only in the left speaker or only in the right speaker. And it is a little weird when you're listening on headphones. I I can admit that you have to be careful about that. But I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't bother me as well. Um, and then it does help it when, like, say, for example, like, you know, the guitar solo on Run With The Devil, which we were just talking about earlier before we recorded how it's such a memorable solo, but it's not like a typical like Van Halen solo like with you know fancy tapping or dive bombs or anything like that you know it's just kind of a very simple melodic you can almost whistle to it yeah but once that you know what that's you know one of the few overdubs on the album and it appears on the right side so it kind of then evens it out it kind of makes sense for that if you're listening to this with headphones you kind of have that space on the right that's empty a lot of the song, you know, that's empty during a lot of the song. And once the guitar solo comes in, same with uh, Jamie's Crying, that lead work is on the right side while the main guitar track's on the left. So it kind of fills it out. It kind of makes it everything else before makes sense in a, in a way. Yeah, sure. And also, you know, speaking of the panty, and I enjoy it on a, You Really Got Me, they kind of went with like a kind of almost like an early Beatles-esque sort of panning approach where like the background vocals are all generally hard right. Symbols are kind of to the right. The guitar, of course, is on the left side again. So, you, can, and, you know, besides the bass and the drums being pretty center, you know, it's, it kind of harkens back to those like early stereo days of when <laughs> once they had stereo, they're like, okay, we can put everything to the left or to the right. <laughs> I, I have an idea. Let's put all the drums to the left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those those recordings do kind of bother me just a little bit when when the drums. There are certain things I want in the center and drums and bass are two of those things. Yeah, so any uh do it yourself engineers or uh musicians out there, you know, working in Logic or even just GarageBand, you know, would you say that would probably be one of the more general principles to stick with is like know what your center is going to be when you're recording stuff mixing stuff like having you know bass guitar or any sort of bass instrument yeah well okay mono in the center with the kick drum so i don't think this isn't something that i necessarily came up with myself but this is kind of the theory that i subscribe to when i pan something and a drum kit is a good example. Something like a horn section is also a good example where you have several different elements making a whole. You don't want to, and 
it's just something that irks me and right rightly or wrongly you can do whatever you want there you know there are no rules but for a drum kit when you take like say like the tom and you put it far left or like the you know the rack tom in the far left speaker and the floor tom in the far right speaker to me that's it's annoying because i think of the drum kit as one instrument and so that would be a case where i would actually like maybe you could put the overheads hard left and hard right i i never do i only ever go like maybe 50 and then and then everything else is kind of just panned a little bit so it's basically mono um but it the instrument i th- i think the instrument speaks better that way because it is a single instrument and same with the horn section like if you have a three piece horn section you you shouldn't re- like take unless it's like only a horn recording and like someone's going to sit there and imagine like the horns are playing in front of them that's not yeah, what I'm, like I'm, a, like a classical quartet or yeah trio yeah, or yeah like exactly that. like i'm talking about like a, a horn section you would find in like bb king's blues band or something like that mm-hmm. is that is, in and of itself is one thing so like you can you can kind of like let's say you want to put them all on the right and you want to make you know the uh saxophone is the hardest right and then the trumpet is kind of you know 50 percent, and then you know whatever the trombone is the next closest one to the center that's fine you still have space within that section but it's still sounding from one primary location if you just start panning them whichever way you want across the entire stereo field you actually in my opinion you get less stereo um mixes because if everything is stereo then nothing is stereo it's the same with reverb if everything has reverb then nothing has reverb and what i mean it all blends together in a way exactly you need contrast anything yeah i like that contrast is just the name of the game in in mixing and i guess probably in music too if, if everything's at you know full rock and roll then you know, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> you know, then nothing's going to sound big because everything's big. Yeah, right. And, you know, like Running With The Devil is the perfect example. You kind of have the hard-hitting chorus with the background vocals and then the verse. You know, Eddie's using a technique called palm muting that gives you that kind of, um, I don't know how you, the sound of palm muting, I always think of kind of being fuzzy or a little chewy in a sense. I guess that, would, not, that would make sense. Yeah. You know, a classic, you know, like rock technique on the guitar, but it kind of helps create that distinction between you know, the different sections. And that's, you know, pretty common technique, you know, in rock music, you have palm muting during the verse mm-hmm. and then not palm muting <laughs> on like choruses and, you know, bigger sections so that the strings vibrate more. And then with the palm muting, it, it dampens the vibration of the string. Similar right. to like a damper pedal on the piano um, to an extent, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. But yeah, yeah, that um yeah, I like what you're saying with the the panning and the drums. Like you do have a 
all the exceptions. Like, you know, I know plenty of recordings that have like background vocals, but each there's like four different background vocals, but they're all doing different things. And one's on the left, one's on the right, one's, you know, somewhere else. And, or, you know, things where you hear, you know, that single high tom being in the left speaker, then the mid tom appears in the right. So you have this kind of circular sound with the drums, which, yeah, you know, just different approaches. It's, and again, like there are plenty of very successful mix engineers who kind of mix that way. But for me, it just, doesn't seem appropriate to kind of treat every single track as a mono track i guess you could say like you know treat the drums as the drums and this this kind of goes with dynamics too whereas like of course in mixing like if you're mixing a rock song you kind of need like the kick and snare to kind of be you know larger than life as big of a house type of thing but like with within the scope of that, it's not necessarily my job to control the entire dynamics of like the drum kit. Like the drummer, I'm assuming played the part the way he wanted the part to play, right? And so it's just my job to make it speak in the way that he played it to the you know service of the song. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess I'm getting a a, a bit uh, complicated here, but no, it's all good. You know. It's a. That's why we're doing this. <laughs> yeah, it's a. It's an ebb, ebb and flow type of thing, and that's that's why mixing is so hard to learn because it's like, well, you told me that I should do this, and it's like, well, I told you you should do that most of the time, but sometimes, you know. If, yeah, there are no hard fast rules. There's just the the general approaches that you can kind of start at. Right. It's always good to have a starting point. Exactly. Yeah. So after run with the devil. We go straight into this, you know, less than two minute instrumental, you know, just epic guitar solo. And I'm not going to try to replicate, emulate any of Eruption, but uh, we'll just like talk about like how cool it is that, like, in in some ways, uh, almost like confident or just like a, you know what, we're just going to. I mean, they knew what they had in Eddie, you know. Yeah. In a sense. So, like, here we go. Here it is. And, you know, it's just like him introducing himself to the rest of the world. And, of course, doing some of the classic two-handed tapping. Well, Um, it's classic now, but... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be pretty, yeah, mind-blowing at the time. You know, Gonpi would be similar to, like, the ways in which you know, maybe you know Hendrix used feedback back in the day, or or the wah wah pedal, you know that sort of thing. Um, but Eddie did mention because, uh, as we said, like the two handed tapping thing had been, you know, a technique that other guitarists had used back, you know, before Van Halen. And I didn't know this, but apparently there was an interview in which he discussed like he either saw live or. Um, heard Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin doing his guitar solo breakdown on their tune Heartbreaker, which, you know, for those who need a refresher, Heartbreaker is the Zeppelin tune that goes... You know, that one. And it has a kind of distinctive, like, breakdown. You know, the band stops... And it has a, a 
don't know this solo actually i'm just kind of trying to go <laughs> by like sound but it has like a double like it's up to that extent and van halen was just uh, he noted that you know what so he's pulling the in like a pull off on the guitar you know everyone you don't have to be a guitar player do you know like the basic principle of a guitar is you place a finger on a string and then you pluck that string well you can pull the finger off that string and you get the open string to ring out without having to hit it with your right hand or your picking hand mm -hmm. so that's a pull off so Ailey, uh, Eddie stated that he was thinking you know, instead of pulling it off to an open string could I pull it off to just another finger and so that kind of went down the rabbit hole of like figuring out instead of having an open string, what if that was my index finger? So that was still pressing down on a string. And so that got into the whole idea of pulling off with a finger on the right hand. So that's his like explanation of what led him down to that path. Um, I don't know, I'm sure there's other like <laughs> versions of it, you know, like maybe you heard Alan Holdsworth or what have you, but Apparently it was uh, that Heartbreaker solo that you know goes back to like 1971, which kind of led him down that path of the two-handed tapping. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, um, and again speaks to the influence you know Zeppelin had on them. Yeah, the tapping so, is definitely yeah. like I remember when I first heard Eruption when I was like probably like 12. I was just like I used to just like sit in my basement and uh, like steal music you know <laughs> like everyone did and uh <laughs> i was like holy napster all the way right uh i didn't i never really used napster um you know what i never pirated music everyone paid for your music there you go yep. uh but hearing hearing eruption for the first time as like i had like just started playing guitar and like i had finally like discovered that there was like other music other than like 90s country that like my parents listened to. <laughs> I was like, oh, there's like Aerosmith and ACDC and like Guns N' Roses and like Van Halen. I was like, holy cow. Like listening to Eruption was eye-opening. Yeah, it's yeah, it can be mind-blowing. You're like, what is going on? Like, like this doesn't even sound possible. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It kind of utilizes some of the classic uh two-handed like patterns that go on that you have like there's multiple sorts of like patterns of like which finger goes down hit the string and then the pull off and so that kind of uses the classic sort of like it's like a triplet pattern that you create between the two hands mm -hmm. um and of course like you can't hear eruption and how it ends without then going into their version of <laughs> version of the kinks you really got me and that's just like a just a great like like you're in a bar rock and roll like song in a sense <laughs> oh um, yeah but that kind of leads me to like i wanted to get into like and i don't know if maybe this was when we were in a car uh driving to a gig at one point we might have been listening to a interview with david lee roth but he was talking about like growing up and everything but how uh how he kind of approached the early Van Halen albums as like, yeah, it was like hard rock with like 
doo-wop lyrics and background vocals. And you you really got me as a good example, but you know, you know, Jamie's crying, even run with the devil, like all those background vocals and how they're like answers to the lead vocal. Like you have that back and forth almost right. like call and response going on. Um just kind of leads to, you know, whether if it was a conscious decision or just how you know, the music that they heard growing up just kind of influenced their sensibilities of like, oh, yeah, we, you know, I'll, I'll sing this and we'll have the background vocals answer me with that. It wouldn't um, surprise me if you told me that it was just kind of an influence and they weren't, they weren't necessarily, yeah. they're like they were doing it on purpose, but they didn't necessarily realize that it was from all their years of influences and whatnot. Yeah. It's, it was sometimes like, I don't know, it can get lost, like newer bands or newer artists, like but that whole. It's just a great, you know. I think Jamie's crying is a great example. Like you could turn Jamie's crying into just like a cl- classic, like R and B doo-wop tune if you wanted to. Yeah, you yeah. Can just picture like four people in the back, you know, background singing, Jamie's crying. Boom, boom, boom. You know, snap. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. But all the, you know, all these kind of different influences like how they mesh together to, to create Van Halen is why you know they their music kind of stands the test of time and how it just caught so many people's ears like it wasn't just like you know like dudes into them like they garnered like mainstream ex- success and you know it probably didn't help you know probably didn't hurt that you know David Lee Roth was kind of a very you know kind of almost like flamboyant lead man kind of right. similar to like a Mick Jagger in a way I would say uh, so. With, you know, better, a uh, higher register, uh, <laughs> and it kind of like a, you know, like a, you know, Steven Tyler as well, definitely. Yeah, just kind and of then, these you know, larger than life with, figures. Yeah, you just yeah, definitely larger than life, and then you have you know, the lead guitarist, you know, Eddie Van Halen, just doing stuff that no other lead guitarist in any other rock band was doing. Yeah. And you know, with a smile on his face and a wink to the camera. I guess was, we, we don't really have time to uh, get into it today, so perhaps we'll make an extension of this. But the uh, the all the band drama in Van Halen is absolutely just it's it's a whirlwind like of a <laughs> roller coaster ride between David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar and. It's it's really fascinating. It's a it's a really good example of what happens when a band gets that successful, because then you, then the money st- starts rolling in, and whenever there's money involved, you know you start having problems. Um, yeah, of course. Like you, yeah, you gave me a couple great quotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the other day in a text, what we had like a an eleven year old toothache extracted. <laughs> yeah, that was um I think I think Alex Van Halen said that in their uh I think it's Unchained documentary that was like it's weird because it was recorded over like a pretty long period of time. So like you can kind of see like they first get Sammy and then and they always they're always talking bad about David Lee Roth. And even I I heard another interview from Sammy Hagar in two thousand four and he's still you can tell he's like trying to be a little bit nicer about it, but he, you know, he straight up says like, yeah, you know, a little diplomatic. Da- yeah, D- David Lee Roth couldn't go with Eddie, you know, musically. You know, he was limited. 
by his his vocals and it, it's just really interesting um because i know that there's a lot of people who like both I, i'm one of those people i like i like both singers okay yeah. um yeah that always tends to be one of those like dividing lines like are you van halen fan or a van hagar fan yeah but i i will say my favorite van halen songs are from that earlier era of van halen music mm-hmm. for whatever it's worth but yeah it's again if we started talking about all that and what led to it and stuff this podcast would be another two hours long but yeah there's just, yeah so much drama that you know listeners can look up and google and probably youtube and like like I said, like a band that stays together for that long, you almost it's impossible not to have personal issues, like personalities clashing, especially when, like you said, money's involved and everyone man, has their own manager raking in the money. <laughs> yeah. And, oh yeah. You know, drugs and alcohol get involved too, and everyone starts to believe in their larger than life. But we we uh, we'll say like after you know the sad passing of uh, Eddie, like there are a lot of stories of people saying like you know, like he was a very you know genial man, like very nice and oh yeah, know, well seeming seemingly down to earth. So that was good to hear. Like, yeah, and and Sammy know. Hagar released a statement basically saying that like basically everyone had made up by the time of Eddie's passing, and he didn't. That's, he did, that's good. Didn't to hear. want to. Uh, you know, they didn't make it public because they didn't want to deal with all the rumors of a reunion and whatnot. Because you know they of were cor- they yeah. were just never going to do that. that would be, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and it did seem I um mentioned his first wife Valerie Bertinelli. They ended up divorcing in two thousand seven, mm-hmm. but um it sounded like it's fairly mutual. You know, of course they had their son Wolfgang Van Halen, which is just the most awesome name ever, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, but when uh, Eddie got remarried in 2009, uh, his brother officiated, Alex, and um, uh, Valerie was there too. So it seemed like it was pretty, you know, it wasn't one of those like very, you know, harsh divorces where both sides hate each other. It seems like it was fairly, you know, congenial. That's good to hear then too. Yeah, by the time it was all said and done, it kind of seemed like pretty much everyone in that world had kind of rectified any of their issues that they had with each other and i mean yeah and maybe that's a little bit of wishful thinking on our part you know but it it, it genuinely seems that way that's that's what kind of all the news is around the band at the moment so anyway thought that thought that was interesting though especially like Uh the two different worlds is just it's kind of like pink floyd where you have you know these three lead singers essentially and you know, yeah. people, everyone has their favorite era of, of the yeah, band. Yeah, of know. course. Yeah, same with like Fleetwood Mac, you know. So let me ask you, did you, did you ever get the chance to see some iteration of Van Halen live? No. Oh, that's too bad. So did I got you? to see them um, back when I was living in Illinois. They played in Champaign-Urbana. Really? At the uh, the arena where the you know the university basketball team would play. At the time, it was called Assembly Hall. Oh, nice. Uh, it was with uh, Sammy Hagar. So my dad, this was during his, uh, he had a phase in which he basically went to as many rock concerts as he could, kind of in the mid-2000s. So uh, like he'd be driving up to Chicago because it was only about you know a couple-hour drive to see you know 
ACDC, Tom Petty, you know, Aerosmith, you know, the Stones. Mm-hmm. So he got he got four tickets to Van Halen. And this, you know, this was, you know, closer to where we were living back then. So I, I got two of my other buddies, uh, Darren and Dan, to come with me. So we got a I got to see Van Halen at least once live, and that, that was pretty cool. This wasn't during the 2004 concert, was it? I don't think it was that early. I feel like it was the 07, 08, 09 range, maybe the later 2000s, if okay. I'm not mistaken. So, so that was with David Lee Roth then, I would presume? No, it was with a Hagar. It was with Hagar. So yeah, I mean, I could could have been earlier. So <laughs> yeah, it could have been like oh four or oh five. Th- that two thousand and four sure. uh, concert or not concert, but tour is kind of legendary for being like an absolute shit show. <laughs> <laughs> well, so unfortunately to say, it might have been that one that because I remember at the time just kind of not being blown away at all. Just kind of it felt a little. Spinal Tap playing at a bar mitzvah. Oh, no. (laughs) Like, it was like the arena, they only had it half open for the audience, and it was only half full. Like, that much was only half full, too. Right. Um, And granted, you know, we're talking, you know, 30-plus years past, you know, their, you know, like, as far as, like, you know, when they began. But uh, Eddie still played great. But it was like the thing that just threw me off that was just maybe this might uh, <laughs> be the reason for the shit show comments was Michael Anthony would have a uh, bass guitar feature. Would you like to know what he did for his bass guitar feature? <laughs> um, yes. Well, what would he do? <laughs> well, let's start with he'd have a custom designed bass that looked like a Jack Daniels bottle. Ah, yes. he's He had that and, for years and years and years. Yeah. So then he would walk around stage, he got a bottle of Jack Daniels from offstage. I'm assuming it was the real thing, unless it was like dyed water. I don't think so. <laughs> Chugging it down while literally just letting his open strings ring. <laughs> causing, you know, feedback and just like running back and forth between the you know, left side, right side of the stage, like cheering on the crowd, chugging the Jack. For about five minutes, and that was his bass feature. <laughs> Man, I'm I'm almost certain you must have seen them in 2004 because I'm pretty sure that was also the last tour that Michael Anthony played on, and he took a pay cut to do it, which is oh crazy. yeah, you know what? Then that is, it was probably that then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. So Eddie, Eddie and Sammy were fighting really badly. Like they were staying in separate hotels, flying on separate jets. They de- they even had different security details. Wow. Um and I'm pretty sure that was right before Eddie went to rehab and kind of got clean. Yeah, I believe you're right cuz I heard that yeah, he eventually went to rehab around 06 or 07, 07. Yeah. Yeah, cuz he had always been probably same with Michael Anthony like battling (laughs) alcohol addiction you know maybe even other drugs too just out of curiosity i'm gonna look up their 2004 schedule yeah yeah look it up like i wonder if they did go to champagne urbana because i felt like it was later (laughs) so this is the part of the episode in which we both google something listeners so it's really a uh, they really did go. They went to, to Chicago. Hear. They went to Chicago in the United Center. So 
That was in July. Did you go in the summer? It probably would have been, yeah, this summer. That could have been it. So that was about halfway through the tour. So yeah, that was you're probably right in the thick of them. Uh... <laughs> oh no, that was the first leg. Okay, so maybe maybe you probably saw one of the better shows then. Hmm, they probably didn't quite see. hate each other. Yep. Oh, there it is. Yep. September twenty first, two thousand four, Champaign, Illinois. That was probably it. Oh, okay. Okay. Champaign. Okay. So you saw, yeah. actually you saw it on the second leg. Yeah, the second leg. So yeah, they probably hated each other's guts by then. <laughs> I mean, looking at this, like from June eleventh through November nineteenth, like almost literally every, at least every other day. Yeah, they they. That's like that's crazy. Not amount. to say that they weren't you know they weren't old at this point, but they weren't necessarily like spring chickens either. Like that's just physically tough. <laughs> yeah, that's really hard. Like, arena shows like that, you know, many people, they might do, you know, a month or two, but like, damn, that's a lot of shows, short period of time. And if you already have personal issues going on at that point, it's just going to even... Yeah, it's not going to be good. ...fester, even worse. So if it makes you feel any better, you got to see arguably their worst tour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in some ways, yeah, that does make me feel better. Oh man, yeah, that's, oh, man. that's funny because I was listening. I was listening to interviews before we started, and specifically about that tour, about kind of what a disaster and it ended up being. Like just personally for the like the tour was successful, you know, making money and all that kind of stuff. But they, uh, it didn't end well for the for the members. It's <laughs> funny. I, I like that on Wikipedia. It has the set list. And uh, towards the end, you know, their third to last song would have been Run With The Devil. But on Wikipedia, it has in parentheses, occasionally with Michael Anthony on vocals. (laughs) (laughs) Occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah. Not all the time. And that apparently the bass solo must have been like the fifth thing on the set list. Which that's pretty early. That's pretty early for a bass solo. start chugging the jack. Like, damn. (laughs) Oh. There's Surprise, a he be standing at the end. I'm pretty sure his his work box like backstage had like you opened a drawer and it had like five or six bottles of Jack Daniels like oh ready for him. I'm pretty sure he he drank just an incredible amount of actual whiskey yeah, on stage. It's just insane. Insane. Yeah, I couldn't do that. But then again, well with uh with that, my friend, what do you think uh I think yeah. Do you like I, some whiskey right now? I, yeah, it's um. It's, <laughs> let's it's, go have a drink. It's before a drink noon, to Eddie. So let's uh, let's go give a tribute. Yeah, well, it's a uh, afternoon for me right now. Oh, that's right. You're an hour ahead. Eastern, which in some ways really sucks because everything's an hour later. Like the other day, I was going to like you know I wonder if the basketball game's on, and it was eight o'clock. And I'm like, why is I not finding it anywhere? I'm like realizing <laughs> that it's not going to start until like. Nine or ten over here. <laughs> Yikes. But anyway, so we salute you, Eddie. Rest in power, as they say. Rest indeed. in peace. One of the greats. One of the greats, indeed. So with that, this has been Coffee and Consoles. I'm John. And I'm Kevin. And if you have any feedback, go ahead and 
shoot us an email at coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com. We'd love to hear some feedback from you. Yes, indeed. We'd love to. And we're also on the Instagram a little bit, technically. Technically. Coffee and consoles as well. All right, my friend. I bid you adieu. Until next time. Until next time. Rock on. Long days and pleasant nights. (laughs) 